Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, let me encourage you to open it with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And uh, this morning we are going to take uh, another week, or we're taking a break from our sermon series in the book of Romans, chapters 5 through 8. And this morning we're going to look at the end of Luke chapter 1. Probably very familiar to us. We're going to look at Zechariah's song. Zechariah's song. We were introduced very briefly to Zechariah in the video that we just saw from the Bible Project. And uh, we're going to begin reading at verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Verse 57, and we will pick up. But this is kind of coming, this is like the second half of Zechariah's story. The first part of Zechariah's story occurred in verses 5 through 25 of Luke chapter 1. And there, he's a priest, and he is serving God in the temple, and the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, hey, you and Elizabeth are going to have a a, a child, and his name is going to be John, and his ministry is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's going to be your job, is to bring this child into the world. And Zechariah, being the stalwart of faith, is silenced. Uh, He's unable to speak uh, by the angel Gabriel because he doesn't believe Gabriel's message. And so he's struck with silence for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And only when John the Baptist is born is he able to regain his speech, which is where we pick up Zechariah's story and then Zechariah's song, beginning in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. So he's been silenced for nearly the the entire duration of Elizabeth's birth, and so we arrive here at verse 57, Luke chapter 1. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son, Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father, which, by the way, might be Uh, evidence that he was also deaf. We know that he couldn't speak, but likely he couldn't hear either. They're having to make signs to him. Verse 62 again. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And now, Zechariah's song, which is our primary text for this morning's message. Verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, 
as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child, John, later known as John the Baptist, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Let's pray together before we take a closer look at Zechariah's song. Let's pray. Father, we want to just pause for a moment and we want to ask that you would do in us what we can't do ourselves, and that is open our hearts to receive your word and to apply it as we ought to, whether that's to have our beliefs shaped or our behaviors shaped, um, to give us increased hope or whatever it may be that you have for us this morning. We recognize we need your spirit to be at work in order for this to happen. And so we ask that you would do so over the next several minutes that we have together looking at Zechariah's song. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Eli Weissel, author of the classic book, uh, Night, which many of you have probably read, the book Night, which really functions as his memoir of his experiences as a young Jewish boy living through the Jewish Holocaust. It also recounts his experience as a prisoner in the Nazi concentration camps at Auschwitz and at Buchenwald. Well, in the book Night, he uh, retells a story of a particular execution at one of the Nazi concentration camps at Auschwitz that would forever lodge itself in his memory. It would stay with him for the rest of his life. Two adults and a young boy were caught hoarding weapons and and guns and were subsequently sentenced to death by hanging. The Nazi guards erected the gallows and made the entire concentration camp come out to gather to witness this execution. They wanted it to be an example to the rest of the camp. And so as the camp gathered around to witness uh, what was about to take place, from somewhere behind him, Weissel heard a man cry out, Where is God? There was no answer. The guards kicked the chairs out from under the victims and the bodies dropped. The two adults died almost instantly, but the young boy not quite heavy enough, struggled on for another 30 minutes. And again, from somewhere behind him, Weissel heard the same man cry out, Where is God? Where is he now? Well, it's likely that none of us in this room or watching online have ever been forced to witness something quite as appalling or as tragic as what 
Weissel was forced to witness that day in that Nazi concentration camp. And yet, it's also equally likely that most of us in this room, at one time or another, have asked the very same question that the man in that crowd asked that day. Where is God? A doctor's diagnosis, a child's rebellion, the loss of a loved one, a financial ruin, a fractured family, a job loss, a nation and moral de- decay. And sometimes we wonder, where is God? Typically, what we mean by that question is not, does God exist? We, 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 we trust, we know that. Typically, what we mean by asking the question, where is God, is uh, how does God fit into this? Given what I know about God, how does he fit into this situation? How's he going to show up? What good is he going to bring out of this situation? Because I can't see how he's going to do that. Where is God? They've all asked that question. And so if you've asked a question like that, you may be in a pretty good position this morning to understand the situation surrounding our text for this morning, Zechariah's song. You may also be in a pretty good position to understand exactly why Zechariah responds the way he does in his song. You see, at the time of John the Baptist's birth, Zechariah and his fellow countrymen were a long way off from being the nation that God had originally called them to be. In the Old Testament, God had called his people to stand out, to be a holy nation. He had called them to be a kingdom of priests, a just people, a righteous remnant, and a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. This is who they were supposed to be. And as a result of this calling, uh, God promised to bless them, and through them, he would bless all of the nations of the earth. This was God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. This is who they were supposed to be. But sin had changed all that. God's people, through their idolatry, through their injustice, and their rebellion against God, had squandered this this calling, and they were subsequently judged for it. And so instead of being a light to the nations like they were supposed to be, They now found themselves ruled by the nations, constantly ruled by the nations, this time by the oppressive Romans. And instead of being a nation that was set apart, a nation that was holy and righteous, they were led by a hypocritical, blind, and fractured religious elite. And so humanly speaking, the people saw no way out of this situation. This was their lot And they saw no way out of it. And so the cry of God's people at the time of of John's birth was a lot like our own at times. God, where are you? And it's within this Jewish longing, this Jewish expectation of God to show up that Zechariah is revealed. This message is revealed to Zechariah that his son John the birth of his son John would be a part of something much bigger that God was about to embark on. That that the birth of John was a part of a bigger plan that God was, was bringing into existence to 
redeem his people, to restore their fortunes and his promises to Israel. That's what John's birth was all about. And so what we find actually in Zechariah's song in verses 68 to 79 is not primarily a song about John. In fact, you can only find two verses that speak to John. Instead, what you find in Zechariah's song is a song about the one to whom John's life and ministry would ultimately point. That's Mary's son, Jesus of Nazareth, the one through whom God's promises were now breaking into the world. And for this reason, Zechariah begins his song with praise. Look at verse 68. Zechariah says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. So Zechariah begins this song by praising God for what God is about to do for his people. It begins by praising him. And what I want you to do is notice three things about this verse, verse 68. The first thing that I want you to notice is that for Zechariah, the coming of Jesus is the coming of the God of Israel. The coming of Jesus is the coming of the God of Israel. For Zechariah, in the person of Jesus, the son of Mary, he sees the coming of God himself. The very God who called his people out of Egypt and gave them the promised land, the very God who gave them the covenants and promised that forever there would be a, a Davidic king ruling over his people, this same God now has come to his people in the person of Jesus. And so to see Jesus is to see the God of Israel. This was the great hope of the Jews during Zechariah's day, that God himself would once again come to his people and would deliver them. This was their hope. Because for centuries up to this point, prophecy had all but ceased. The last time that God had officially spoken to his people through his prophets was about 400 years prior through the prophet Malachi. At this time, the time of John's birth, um, they were ruled by the Romans. And before them, they were ruled by the Greeks. Before them, they were ruled by the Persians. Then before them, the, the Babylonians, the, the Assyrians, the neighboring nations. But during the time of John's birth, they were ruled by the Romans. The religious leaders were fractured, they were morally compromised, and as a result of this, the people were without leaders. They were leaderless. In fact, Jesus, later on during his ministry, would say that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. This was their lot. And so the great hope of the people of Israel was for God to once again visit his people and to do for them what only he could do for them to make them once again into the people that God had called them to be. And Zechariah sees that in Jesus, the God of Israel has returned. Which actually brings us to the next point I want you to notice about verse 68. Notice that for Zechariah, it's as if this redemption has already taken place. Look again at verse 68. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. And he has redeemed his people. It's as if it's already happened. It's already taken place. 
But what's interesting is that Jesus at this time, at the time of John's birth, he's still in Mary's womb. We still got about another six months to go before Jesus is born. And yet for Zechariah, a promise given by God, it's as, it's, it's as good as done. It's as if this promise has already taken place. He has that kind of hope, that kind of confidence in God's promises. But this confidence in God's promises, it didn't come naturally to Zechariah. This wasn't automatic for Zechariah. It's not as though he were this great man of faith that never questioned God, but always believed, believed his promises with simple faith. No, that, that wasn't Zechariah's situation. That's not who he was. Back in verse 20 of Luke chapter 1, you remember he's silenced by the angel Gabriel because he doesn't believe God's message about John the Baptist and about his ministry leading the way for the Messiah. He doesn't believe him, and so he's struck with silence. This is not a man who automatically believes God's promises. But what we see in Zechariah's song as we read is that this time of silence, this time of rebuke, this time of discipline taught him an important lesson. And that is that what God promises to do, he will do. And so now, for Zechariah, having learned this lesson, he sees in Jesus, the unborn Jesus, the guaranteed redemption of God's people. So third thing I want you to notice about verse 68, and that is that the God of Israel, in the person of Jesus, visits our world. He visits our world. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Don't let an over-familiarity with the Christmas story keep you from recognizing the significance of the God of Israel visiting our world. After all, think about what kind of a world we live in. We live in a world that's dominated by, by sin. We live in a broken world. A world where sin and evil have touched and tainted every aspect of human existence. A, a world where we know intimately pain and heartache. We know injustice and ultimately all of us will come to know death. That's the normal experiences of all people and it's into that world that Jesus comes to us. That world. And it's the world that he himself would know pain and heartache and injustice and death. And it's into this world that he steps in to redeem us. And because he steps into this world, our world, Zechariah says that he's able to rescue us from its tyranny. Or as he puts it, he's able to save us from our enemies. Look at verse 69. He says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. So according to Zechariah, 
Jesus is able to save us from our enemies, from the world's tyranny, not only because he's the God of Israel, but because, verse 69, he's also our horn of salvation. He's our horn of salvation. It's not usually a phrase that we use to refer to Jesus, our horn of salvation. I'd be willing to to bet that many of us aren't even sure what exactly does that mean, a horn of salvation. Well, in the Old Testament, in contexts like this, a horn was used as a symbol or as an image of strength or of power or victory. And, And the horn referred not to the musical instrument, of a horn, but to the deadly weapon of a powerful animal, like an ox or a bull. That's what it meant, the horn. And if you've ever seen one of these powerful horned animals up close, you'll understand why this was a favorite image in the Old Testament and here in Zechariah's song of power, of strength, of victory. When my wife Anna and I lived out in Denver for, uh, for several years, when I went to Denver Seminary out there, um, one spring we drove up to Yellowstone National Park to camp out for a few days. And uh, as you drive along in the park, and the park is massive, it's huge, you see these huge bison just walking along the road right next to your car. And they're, they're massive, they're huge. And they don't move out of your way. You go around them. They own the road in Yellowstone. In some cases, these bison are nearly as big as your car. We had a decent-sized SUV at the time, and some of these bison were as big as our car. Their, their necks were the size of barrels. Their, their heads were the size of massive boulders. And some of these Mature bison can get up to 2,200 pounds and be as tall as six feet. I'm six feet. 2,200 pounds of pure muscle. And on top of their, their heads are these kind of short but curved horns that can get up to about two feet long. And they use these horns for fighting, as well as for goring occasional park visitors who get too close, which happened every year we were in Denver. We would hear a story of a visitor who got too close because they wanted a selfie and they got gored for it. This happens. They use those horns for fighting or for goring you if you get too close. And every time that we would drive around in the park and one of these animals would walk by, you would feel the ground shake next to you. And I remember thinking to myself, I would hate to be on the wrong end of those horns. That would be bad news which is exactly the point. This is why Zechariah says Jesus is the horn of our salvation. Because he's powerful. He's strong. And if he turns those horns on you, it's bad news. It's game over. Which is why in verse 71, Zechariah says so confidently that Jesus is able to rescue us from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Because he's powerful. Now at the time that Zechariah wrote this song, or that he voiced it, and later on Luke wrote it down, or however Luke got it, Zechariah would have primarily had in mind physical enemies. 
enemies like the Romans. That's primarily who he would have had in mind. Physical enemies that posed a threat to the nation of Israel. And so for Zechariah, what he knew about Jesus was that Jesus was a national liberator. A liberator who would rescue his people from her physical enemies. Now here's the thing about Zechariah's understanding of Jesus. He wasn't necessarily wrong. Jesus is a liberator who rescues his people from their physical enemies. And one day, this is what we look forward to. This is the book of Revelation. He will conquer his physical enemies, our physical enemies. But what Zechariah wasn't clear on was the timing of this liberation. It hadn't yet been revealed to him that at Jesus' first coming, Jesus would be on a mission to liberate us from our spiritual enemies, from those enemies that keep us enslaved to sin and death. That was Jesus' first mission, and only at his second coming, which we look forward to, will he liberate us from our physical enemies. The timing for Zechariah wasn't yet revealed to him. But as we continue to read on in Zechariah's song, we do see that enough of, of Jesus' first mission, that mission to liberate us from our spiritual enemies, had been revealed to him. Look at verse 76, which, by the way, is the only place where he mentions his son, John. Verse 76 and 77, he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So for Zechariah, he understands that Israel's salvation includes not only the liberation from her physical enemies, but also the liberation from her sins. He, he understands that. He gets that. He knew that Jesus, the Messiah, would have to deal with both of those problems. But how God would accomplish that feat, Zechariah couldn't have imagined. He couldn't have imagined that it was through the death of the Messiah that God would, would defeat his people's enemies and their sins. That wasn't revealed to him. There was no category for a suffering dead Messiah. But this is how God would do it, through the suffering and the death of Jesus. He would defeat Israel's enemies and liberate them from their sins. But this raises the question, doesn't it? Who are our enemies, really? Who really are our enemies? We know from Ephesians 6 that our primary, our true enemies in this world are not physical enemies like flesh and blood. Rather, Paul says, our, our enemies are the powers of darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. And so if our primary enemy isn't a physical enemy, like Rome or some other modern-day political opponent, then who's our enemy? Who is our enemy, really? Well, listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone 
to devour. You see, Peter says that our true enemy is Satan. That ancient serpent, the, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren, that's our primary enemy. And the way that this enemy devours and oppresses God's people is through the exploiting of our sin. By taking advantage of our sinful hearts and enslaving us to its impulses. But where sin is forgiven, Satan's power is defeated. Where sin is forgiven, where sin is defeated, where sin is dealt with, Satan's power is defeated. Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says that the record of debt that stood against us, that is that when we sin against God, we now owe God a debt. He says, God set aside by nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul says that the defeat of sin was the defeat of Satan, our enemy. Because the only weapon that Satan can wield against us, his people, namely his accusations of guilt, that weapon was removed. It was done away with, stripped away by the cross. Satan no longer has a weapon to use against us because our sins have been defeated. They've been dealt with on the cross. 1 John 3.8 tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You see, God, by dealing with our sin, has dealt with our greatest enemy, Satan. And the weapon that he wields, accusations of guilt, is stripped away. He no longer has that weapon to use against you if your sins have been covered by Christ. And through this victory over our enemy, Zechariah says that God frees us from our fears. Look at verse 74. He says the oath that God made to, to Abraham was to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. By defeating our enemy, he's removed our fears. You see, Zechariah understands that there is a kind of fear that keeps us from being the kind of people that God calls us to be. Namely, the kind of people who worship him and serve him all our days without fear. Fear can keep us from being that kind of a people. And in our day and age, there is a kind of fear that is not only endemic, it's prevalent, but it's also encouraged. It doesn't take long to look at your news feed to see that you are encouraged to give in to fear. This is a part of the economy of our day, to give in to fear, but Zechariah says God's dealt with that fear. Here's how Hebrews chapter 2 puts it. The author of Hebrew puts it this way. Since the children, that's, that's us, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. 
You see, in one way or another, what we fear in life or what we worry about in life is in some sense connected to the fear of our mortality or to the mortality of our loved ones. Even when we don't recognize it, there are fears in our lives owing to the fear of our mortality. But the author of Hebrews, reflecting on what the death of Christ accomplished, says that by destroying him who holds the power of death, Christ has dealt decisively with our fears. Because in his death, death itself was defeated. And the result of believing this truth, that not even, fear, that not even death itself needs to be feared, Zechariah says we will be the kind of people who can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so Zechariah, concluding his song after praising God for visiting our world and for defeating our enemies and freeing us from our fears, he says that God provides us real peace. Verse 78. The ground for God's rescue Zechariah says, is because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. You see, the truly good news of Christmas is that in Jesus there is real and lasting peace for you and for me. And it's available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. So that fear doesn't have to rule you anymore. It doesn't have to rule us. Because the horn of our salvation, Jesus Christ, has paid for our sins, has released us from the fear of death, and through faith in Him, we can know this peace. Well, one person commenting on Zechariah's song, he describes the main theme. He sums it up this way. He says, Satan may be a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, as described in 1 Peter 5.8, but none of those who take refuge in Christ, the horn of our salvation, can he destroy. If I were an artist, I would paint for my home a special Christmas painting this year and hang it on the wall near the manger scene. It would be one of those big oil canvases. The scene would be of a distant hill at dawn. The sun is about to rise behind the hill and the rays shoot up and out of the picture. And all alone, silhouetted on the hill in the center of the picture, very dark, is a magnificent wild ox standing with his back seven feet tall and the crown of his head nine feet tall. On both sides of his head there is a horn curving out and up six feet long and twelve inches thick at the base. He stands there sovereign and serene facing the southern sky with his massive neck slightly cocked and impaled at the end of his right horn hangs a huge lion, dead. That's what Jesus, our horn of salvation, did. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you this morning that through our Lord Jesus, the horn of our salvation, you have defeated our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, and you've removed his weapon, the accusations of guilt against us. Because of this, Father, you have given us the ability to know and to worship you without fear to know and to worship you in peace. And we pray that that would be increasingly so for us as we reflect this Advent season on what you've accomplished for us in and through Jesus Christ. We thank you, we praise you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.